Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Let's just take a second. Father, I thank you that we can enter your gates with thanksgiving and with joy. But I also ask right now for your Holy Spirit to just penetrate our hearts and our minds in this conversation and direct and guide this conversation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We began a series a couple weeks ago called The Challenge of a Biblical Worldview. Um, It's challenging in the sense that this is very personal. Do you have a biblical worldview? It's also challenging in the sense that if you hold a biblical worldview, you will be challenged, okay, in our society today. Um, we're operating in part off of a, a statistic that had been, been done through research that has found that 51% of the people in this country identify as Christians. So 51%, sometimes the numbers are a little higher. Um, most of them have been decreasing, actually. Uh, but so you also show that only 6% of that 51% have a biblical worldview. That is really disturbing. What that means is that only 6% of Christians in this country share a common perspective that only 6% of those all agree that the Bible is the Word of God, that Christ is the only way to the Father, certain things like that. And so what we've been doing and will be doing in this series is, like I said, first of all, challenging, do you hold a biblical worldview? Um, and then what does that worldview look like? So we're not going on necessarily anything that would be the, the controversial issues, uh, what is the perspective of communion, is it this, this, and this? But, but what are those central issues? And we began last week with what is your source of truth? After completing that, realized that we needed a part two to that. So this is what is your source of truth, part two. All right? Um, last week saying that, that the Bible for Christians is to be the lens through which we view the world. It is the lens with which we view and, and understand how we're to act and how we're to understand things. This one today is going to be more on where you receive your teaching from. What do you follow? Assuming that you start from a baseline of Scripture, then do you lens that through teachers such as myself, pastors, other ones that you view? This is not a message really that I've really been interested in doing. And I found it to be difficult for a number of reasons. I'll explain a little bit later probably. Um, But let's begin. Right in the scriptures, 1 John 4.1. Dear friends, uh, I'm sorry, let me back that up there. What I want to do is go to uh, 2 Timothy, rather. uh, Chapter 3. Paul's speaking to his son in the faith. And he says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. 
They'll consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, They'll be reckless, be puffed up with pride and, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they'll reject the power that could make them godly. They will act religious, but will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. He goes on to Timothy in the next chapter and says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires. And we'll look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. We're going to seek out teachers that just make us feel good and and, and reinforce our prejudices. Peter jumps in in his second book, in the second chapter, verse 1. But there were also false prophets in Israel, remember? But just as there will be false teachings among you, teachers among you, they will cleverly, another translation says secretly, teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. Jesus, at one point, says in Matthew chapter 7, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. He says, talks about how by their fruit they're going to be known. Scripture is to be a source of truth, but we also receive from pastors, evangelists, and others. And these scriptures warn us that we can be led astray. I want to show you a quick video clip. And the first portion of this video interposes between um, several teachers that are orthodox, which are biblically accurate, several that are not. See if you can determine which. There'll be no test. The latter portion of it is interviewing three young people from our own state, from Holland, Michigan. And so I offer this as the beginning of our conversation. I was raised as a very devout Muslim in the United States. And the fact of the matter was, every time I connected with the Christian, I realized that they didn't know why they believed what they believed. The Christians who were around me wouldn't share the gospel with me, and I never realized why. I concluded either they didn't believe the gospel was true, or if they did believe it, they didn't care if I went to hell. It is a pain to know that there are people who do not know Jesus. It is a greater pain to know that oftentimes Jesus and Christianity is being distorted. Who told you you can't accomplish your dreams? I think around the world, they know the phrase, the American dream. Your destiny is calling out. It's time to start living large. We are exporting the very worst of what Christianity has to offer. I declare you dead free today, saith God. So that many people harden their heart against a Jesus, a Christ, a Christianity, that is not the true version of it. It's as easy to get healed as it is to get forgiven. I live in Texas. We are considered the buckle on the Bible belt. Around here, everybody thinks they're Christian simply because they live in a conservative region of the nation. You can grow up in the church, hear a gospel about freedom, and still work your tail off trying to maintain the image that you're a good person. I had my Jesus on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights at youth group, 
in the rest of the week, I was chasing after worldly things that made me happy. And I saw nothing to like about God. You have an increasing number of people, but were raised in churches that didn't take the gospel seriously or took it for granted. Wow, like Jesus died for my sins? That's so convenient for me. I don't have to go to hell, but I'm going to go do my own thing. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, they don't know what they believe or why they believe it. We're assuming that people understand the gospel. I think it was Christian Smith who said that what we're seeing nowadays in the American church is the rise of what he calls moralistic, therapeutic deism. How to make people moral? You know, I look like this perfect golden child, but I was so dead. A place to go to feel better about themselves? I'm asking you to feel good about who you are. And so as a result, we're seeing a church in America that's becoming ultimately Christless. The first individual we saw there is Nabil uh, Qureshi, um, a Muslim who became a follower of Christ and became actually a teacher. Uh, he died not too long ago, just recently, and uh, is actually an associate of Abdu Murray, uh, a friend of ours here at the church as well. The guy who followed him was a guy named Paul Washer, uh, so both of those were Orthodox people. After that, you saw Joel Olstein, um, not Orthodox, we'll discuss that. After that was Kosti Hinn. Kosti Hinn was the... Um, uh, is still the nephew of Benny Hinn, who you saw later, who talked about forgiveness and healing. Benny Hinn is known for his healing crusades, etc., etc. Um, Costi, who was with him for a number of years, walked away from that as a relative and, and as an individual following God and denounced all the uh, things that were happening about it. Uh, talked about $12,000 a night hotel rooms, things like this, and the exorbitance of what was involved. Um, then it goes back to Osteen, then Sean DeMars, who's Orthodox, then Kenneth Copeland, uh, not Orthodox. Um, Paul Washer again, then Benny Hinn wraps it up, and then you've got Emilio Ramos, who's from uh, Texas. Um, and then it had these guys and how they're discussing uh, the various things that they're discussing. Um, moralistic therapeutic deism, the one professor finishes off um, by stating this, and this is, I think, the number one issue that's crept into the church today. And the wreckage that you see inside those churches, I think, is, is meant to be obviously evocative of the um, theological wreckage that exists. This term, moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, was made known, uh, coined by a guy named Christian Smith. He's a sociology professor and uh, a Christian, that I believe, out of Notre Dame. Um, in his book, which was a 2005 book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, he introduced this term, okay, of moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD, to describe the common religious beliefs exhibited by American youth in this survey. It was a survey that had been uh, um, endowed by the Lilly Endowment and privately funded, and it was entitled The National Study of Youth and Religion. And so he did this and came out of it with saying this is the majority in 2005 of what teenagers believe and are practicing. Now those same teenagers now are adults operating in their 20-somethings or so as well. He labeled this as a religion with the following traits. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Mm, edging on some things here, is the Bible really about just being good and nice and fair to each other? Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. 
Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. In other words, I'm not happy, things aren't working out. Then I go to God to validate the decision I want to make already and make me feel good again and go forward. Not necessarily true or right, but he stays out of my life except when I need to resolve something and then it's a reflection of myself. And then five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, I don't want to stretch you right here too far, but I could ask you how many, without asking, raising your hands, how many of you believe that um, all good people go to heaven? And I don't want you to answer that because I have no doubt that some of us would raise our hands on that and say, yeah, anyway, that's a good person who goes to heaven, and that is absolutely abiblical. That doesn't mean biblical with an A. It means it's wrong. Good people and our goodness is not what uh, gets us to heaven. It is salvation based upon the sacrifice of Christ and faith in that alone. But this is the belief that is entered in, is that a God who makes me feel good, that has some moral things so I do good, that stays out of my life, except when there's a problem, and then when there is a problem, I go to, not God, but my image of that, that resolves it in a way that makes me feel good again. There's no conviction in this. There's no sense of challenge or sacrifice or suffering is not a part of this at all. It's also been referred to, this moralistic theopedic deism, as ego novism. Ego novism comes from the Latin ego meaning self, novo meaning to make new, rewrite, rewrite, or invent. So an ego novist is an individual who develops his or her own personal religious system, and they borrow ideas from established religions that they're familiar with. Many ego novists self-identify as being members of other religions. And in the Urban Dictionary, which is where I drew this example from, they actually give an example just for you to follow. And this is their example in the Urban Dictionary. A person who calls himself Christian but has not studied the Bible, isn't familiar with biblical law, and just has his or her own sense of God, and right and wrong, that person is an ego novist. Or in other words, that person is a moralistic, therapeutic deist. Or in other words, that person is the majority of Christianity within this country today. This is a devastating, disturbing trend that we're seeing. And while it's been mostly rooted in a a younger age group, I see this in every age that I deal with anymore today. Now, we noticed Olstein for a minute, and, and some of these may be big fans of yours, and I, I, I may shut you down and you may exit over this issue, and I, that's not my decision or choice to make. That's yours, and it's not my desire to see that. But if I don't give you specifics, then you don't know what you're dealing with. Olstein is not um, just a, a popular figure. He currently has the largest church in America, on-site location, single site, over 50,000 people gather. His books are rampant everywhere. Now, I'll be honest very personally. He drives me crazy. Okay? Now, here's the reason why he drives me crazy. It's nothing personal. I like to see success. I like to see that. But you will not see or hear anything of the cross, nothing of conviction in anything that he offers. Um, I, I actually recently, a couple of weeks ago, not in preparation for this, just a couple of weeks ago, stumbled across a channel that he was speaking on at the time. And, and I thought, okay, I haven't tried to pay attention. I haven't reviewed the things I'm reviewing with you now for a lengthy period of time. I rather focus on the truth and having an understanding of the truth, and then you recognize what is counterfeit. But if you don't understand that there are counterfeits out there, you don't even pay attention to the process. 
And so uh, just going past and clicking a station, I saw it and I thought, well, you know, I haven't checked this out for a long time. Maybe I'm operating over all inf- old information. Maybe, there's, maybe you got saved, whatever. So I, I click it on. And he's doing an exposition on a character named Gideon in the scriptures. And this character is someone who um, is of, of low positioning, not known, very weak, um, hiding, and, and God draws him out to be the defender of the nation against a group called the Midianites who had invaded the country. He rallies the crowd, trusting in, in, in God. This is where the term uh, um, uh, a fleece is referred to, putting out a fleece. Because, you know, is it really you, God? And he puts out a fleece, and it's wet on one side and out around the land. Then he flips it the other way and says, let it be wet there and not there. And it, okay, so God, that's you. All right, so he's trying to validate that. Not an ongoing technique to use, unique to the moment. You'd, you'd have to go kill a sheep and get some fleece anyways. You don't want to do that, okay? So just don't do that. So... He starts off by rallying the crowd. He ends up with 32,000-some guys, and they're going to go and beat on these 50,000 Midianites or so. Along the way, God says, no, you have too many men. <laughs> Gideon's going, that doesn't line up. So God tells him to get rid of 22,000, so he's down to the number that he has. And then he says, no, you have too many guys still. Uh, drops it down to 300 guys. And, and, and so he's now to go with 300. instantly leave the swords behind. Um, just take a piece of pottery, put a little uh, flame inside it, a, a, a lamp and, and a trumpet, and, and surround the camp with the 300 guys, 50,000 people, 300 guys, blow the trumpet and smash the lanterns and say for the sword of the Lord, and the, the guys are told, they, they shout for the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. And all 50,000 of these Midianites kill each other in the panic or run away. And there's this great victory. That's the story biblically. Olstein's take on it is this. This man was unknown. He was in the shadows, small. But by the end of the day, people are shouting his name. He becomes known and he becomes big and his name is shouted amongst things. This is what God wants for you. Come out of the shadows. Come in what God wants for you and have your name be shouted out. That is not what the scripture is about. That passage of scripture was not about Gideon's being uplifted. What it was about was, in fact, to specifically show that without God's help, we can't achieve anything of success. The whole focus was to strip Gideon of every resource he has, including weaponry, and to go and do this in obedience to God. And then out of that, God is made known and, and said that Israel will know, that there, and people will know there is a God in Israel. So his twisting of this is subtle. It's, it's using the scripture, but the emphasis is entirely misplaced. And you'll see this repeatedly, and we like things like this because it puts us at the center of the story. But we're never supposed to be at the center of the story. Christ is at the center of the story. So this is just one example of, of what can be in play. He's also a, a, a part of what is called the prosperity um, gospel or word of faith This is the teaching that God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And the whole purpose of the cross and Christ's sacrifice was to make sure that you're a success in life. And suffering, that's not for you. Um, It's to be successful and complete all these things. It's a very American doctrine. It does not work effectively in any part of the world except where people will give their money to those things. And, and, And there's this positive thinking in place. Another person who's a big part of this is one who was up there as well too, Kenneth Copeland, who was, you know, declaring you debt-free. He also recently in the COVID situation declared power over COVID and in one kind of weird moment says, I, I blow you away. I blow you away. And blows away COVID, which I don't think worked because um, <laughs> it's still here. 
Um, and my purpose is not to ridicule these people, so forgive me if that's what's coming across right now. Uh, there's a frustration in me, I think, on these things. But if you're into the whole pos- prosperity gospel and what it's saying, I, I, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I don't understand how, as a Christian, you think that's what God's ultimate best thing for you that he wants and for everyone to have. If you read the Bible and you realize that our founder dies on a cross and that 11 of the 12 who carry that message also die painful deaths, none of them were wealthy, none of them were, were, were gained with success per se, and that for the first three centuries of the church under Rome's domination and persecution, that was the story for Christians. It wasn't become a Christian, get a check. It was become a Christian, and in the words of Jesus, pick up your cross and follow me. It was an issue of sacrifice and commitment that was made because it was the truth and therefore worth the things that are in place for that. Today, Christians are threatened in China and Afghanistan and other parts of the world. This thing does not hold up in that way, but the true issue of the cross and of Christianity does. Nationalism is another thing that's spread through and is being taught. This uniquely American identity of, of, of having the cross be blended with the flag in such a way and underlying some of this, this is not where it, 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 it is definitely linked with, but there are associations with something called dominionism. Dominionism is a teaching that goes like this. We do have dominion over the earth, and Christians particularly are supposed to, and there are seven areas, particularly arts, sciences, politics, others, that you were to rise up and take dominion over. When we do that, then Christ will come back. And this drives the idea that we should have a political um, control of a nation or things of this nature. This is way beyond praying for the nation or anything else. It's dominion. It's taking charge of things. Another element is hyper-grace. Hyper-grace goes like this. First of all, proper grace. We're sinners. Christ dies for us. We have faith in that, and because of his death, we're made right with God, and we're given grace, not because we're good, because we're not, not because we've earned it, because we can't, but because he's chosen sovereignly and freely to extend that grace to us and awaken within us by the power of the Holy Spirit a conviction of our need for that. That's grace. Hyper-grace goes like what the guy up there said. So Jesus died for my sin. How convenient for me. I'm not going to hell, so I can go and do whatever else I want. Or like one of the uh, um, not-so-long-ago uh, contestants on The Bachelor says, I, 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 I sin all the time, and Jesus still loves me. Now, in the sense that Jesus still loves us, that's true. But in the sense that, we're, that, that there's no pain or hurt or no heartache or no problem with that issue, hyper-grace at its core offends and dishonors the sacrifice Christ made. At best, it's a considerably profound act of spiritual immaturity at its best. And at its worst, it's a license to sin and to continue to defile things. There's another thing out there called New Apostolic Reformation, NAR. And a lot of these are saying that there's current apostles. And under the current apostles, then, they have the ability to... Um, to uh, say things that are extra biblical and have the same weight as, as the scriptures. That's never going to be something that should be in place for winning. Nobody has the right to override or overwrite or add to the scriptures. Um, there's been translations. Most of the translations are fairly solid that are out there. Messen, the message translation, we're a little watchful of. There's a little bit of a looseness with it. But generally, it's true to what's going in play. 
There's a new one that actually I looked at and didn't realize until I looked at the roots of it uh, um, is called the Passion Translation. It's not really even a translation. It's the work of a single uh, person who has definitely shaped it to their own perspective that lines up with this new uh, um, apostolic reformational viewpoint. There are actually sections of the Passion Bible that are added to significant sections that have not, they're not had anything to do with the Scripture itself. But it plays to this individual's direction, their viewpoint. We have to be cautious of what it is that we listen to, what it is that we're drawn into. Revivalism is another thing that's out there. Revival is something that is from God. It's a conviction for change within us. And we change and we're drawn to that. Revivalism is something that is made by man, that's hyping up others, um, manipulating them, and, and shaping them in some way. When we look into the scriptures and what is being said, he says, watch out for these false prophets because by their fruit you're going to recognize them. Jude 11 gives a little indication of what that fruit is. He says, what sorrow awaits these false prophets for they'll follow in the footsteps of Cain who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. What you're seeing within that is Cain's representation is pride his thing's not taken as an offering his brother's is. And in pride, he can't accept that and he kills his brother. Pride is a central issue for these individuals. Balaam is an ancient uh, um, uh, prophet who prophesied for people the way they wanted to hear it so they'd pay him money. Greed is the second element that you're going to see about this and money's talked about a lot in that process. Just for reference, for those of you that don't know us, we have only, outside of a regular offering time issue, only on two or three occasions in the church's history have we ever stopped and said, look, there's a situation in place here and there's a need here and presented something. And each time it was about three minutes in length of time. And that's it. It's not that money's not important. It is. But when that becomes a central issue that's driving it, watch out and be cautious of what's in place. The one with Korah has to do with a, a guy who rebelled against Moses' authority and tried to raise himself up over him. And so you're seeing pride, you're seeing greed, and you're seeing rebellion against authority. These people will not take correction, they will not accept correction, and they are driven in a way that is not something that you want to engage in or be a part of. As we go through this whole process of the fruits and everything else that's there, I need to to, to, to back up on one thing because there's another issue that's entered in and it's a reworking, I only became aware of recently, a reworking in some of these areas of the word repentance. Repentance means a change of mind. Now there's an orthodox view of that I'll offer in a moment, but what has come to understand in this is, is that I've had a change of mind and so now I accept that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, I've had a change of mind, I'm in hev- going to heaven and that's it. I again go and do whatever I want to do It's not a change of behavior, it's strictly the change of my mind, because I can't really control my behavior, and I can never, I'm always going to be failing and stumbling in some way, so this is, it's just a change of mind, which I've done. This is really a messed up thinking. Demons understand who God is, and who Jesus Christ is, and they're not going to heaven. And so if demons understand that, there's something different about this. The proper view of this biblically is not that just repentance is a change of mind, but that that change of mind results in a changed behavior. In fact, a changed mind demands a changed life. It's not just an affirmation of him. It changes who we are. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That there's a sorrow, that we are aware that we're sinful individuals in the light of a holy God, and there's no way our goodness is ever going to be enough. But Jesus Christ comes, bears our sin on a cross, dies for that, and in faith believing that, we are made whole and restored in relationship. Now that means a change of how we live our lives. And yes, we will stumble and we will fall. There'll be moments when we'll be so aware of something wrong within us and we will weep over that. And then we offer that to God and we get forgiveness for that and we move on and we live life. But to have a life that has no conviction in it, no element of the cross, no true repentance, this is, is a statement from hell. Joel Osteen makes a statement that 99% of, of most people, of all people, are good. Just those 1% of, of Hitler and Saddam Hussein you have to watch out for and whoever's playing the Lions next week. Those are the only truly evil people out there, okay? But 99% are good, and that is not biblical. The Bible tells us that 100% of people are bad, that all of us have sinned and fallen short. Communism and socialism on its surface looks like a Christian thought. We'll all just pull things together and we'll work. It has never worked because it has a false view of man's, of, of man's nature. That we'll all just share our stuff. No, we won't because we're selfish. Capitalism works not because it's godly or, or biblical in any way, but because it has an accurate view of mankind. We're motivated by our greed. We're motivated by our self-interest. And a capitalistic system feeds that. That's not an argument for capitalism. Capitalism has some serious issues to it. But what I'm trying to have you see is that the roots of these issues are a view of mankind. Ultimately, there's something that needs to change within us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, he begins his, 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 his sermon series, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven's come near. Then Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 4 and he rebukes him. No, he doesn't rebuke him. Jesus begins to preach and what does he start off with? What's the word? Okay, I know, and I know there's some of us that can't read and that's a tragedy. But the vast majority of us can, and I mean that. I know there's some that can't read. But the majority of us can to have a stronger voice on this. He begins his ministry with what word? Repent. Repent. Acts chapter 2. Peter and the disciples speaking his first real message out to people after Pentecost, he says, repent. Be baptized, every one of you in the name. Now, a lot of the churches don't speak some of these issues because now they're so entwined with their constituency that are so much of the world or so immature in their faith that if they offend them, they lose their support. And we'll find out next week just where that's at as far as we're concerned. Okay? And so that's where that's at. The scripture's sitting here saying, repent. Peter stands up, and the first time he has a chance to talk to anyone in public, he doesn't start off with thousands of people looking at him saying, look at you guys, you're all good. It's all good. We're all good. Um, you know, Jesus, and, and you, you didn't have anything to do with that. I know. No, he starts out and says, Jesus, the one instantly who you guys killed. <laughs> just want to point that out. And they do the same thing later in Acts when they're talking to him. Just Jesus, the one, let's start off with the baseline. You, you did kill him. Let's start from that point. Very discomforting thought, but then leads them to the truth. Repentance isn't just sorrow. 
Judas was sorry that betrayed Christ. Then he goes out and commits suicide. Peter was sorry and had sorrow that he denied Christ. But he repents of that and is restored. And it changes how he lives from that point onward. Not just his thinking. Any teacher who is ignoring this, and many do ignore it because they don't want to lose their audience. But anyone who ignores the conviction of the cross or how that's to affect our lives is not a teacher that's in line with, with Scripture. So you decide, you want to be part of a structure that makes you feel good to your damnation? Or do you want to understand what is the true reality that surrounds us? If we go into 1 John, we're told, chapter 4, Verse 1, dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test these things. Acts 17.11, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying or what Randy or Mickey or Brian or anyone else is saying, whether it's true. And not just in an Olstein way that borrows a scripture, but is it true to what the understanding of what that scripture is supposed to be about? Second Peter, Peter weighs in. If we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus, a false teacher just makes up stories. Those are his sources. It's not scripture. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. Because of that experience, we have an even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets, by the scripture. You must pay close attention to what they've written in Scripture. I'm adding that Scripture, but that's what he's saying. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Test the spirits. Examine the Scripture. Look closely. Preparing for this message, this is not one I want to deliver. It's not the focus, and it's one time we're focusing on because our focus needs to be on things. You want to know the false? You focus and understand the truth, and then you'll understand the counterfeit. I started off as I, in preparing and studying for this, and I found myself angry as I found out how much of this garbage is out there. Then I found myself depressed because I realized just how much of this garbage is out there. And then I got sad because I realized how many people are being deceived by it. And then I reached a point of resolution and hope that I hope you will find also as well too as we wrap this up today. And let me explain to you as to why. I'm going to suggest to you several things. One, if you really want resources on this, it's in your Bible. These next several books were written specifically to combat false teaching. Galatians, the book of Galatians, the book of 2 Peter, book of 1 John, 2 John, the book of Jude. I see how many of you are writing this down. So let me take this again very slowly. The book of Galatians, the book of 2 Peter, the book of 1 John, the book of 2 John, and the book of Jude. And I know the rest of you, you're going to go home and you're going to watch the live stream. You're going to take it off that, but you're going to remember those books, right? Amen? Amen? Thank you. Those are ones that you can look at. I want to suggest this to you as we reach the conclusion on this. One, In all this, we need to be gracious. Not everything or everyone is heretical. Sometimes it's different styles. Sometimes it's just secondary issues. Sometimes they've wandered in one area, but the core is still solid. Be gracious. I saw one individual who's who's listing all the heretical teachers, and I find that most of the stuff they're listing were minor issues of disagreement that Christians have disagreement, not core to the faith. 
We need to be gracious. Not everything or everyone is heretical. Sometimes it's just different stuff. You need to stay focused on Christ and on Scripture. Don't become experts on evil. I've seen this happen. We get so caught with a passion for truth that we're going to find all those nasty little demons and horrible teachers and we're going to tear them down and make sure. And then what happens is we become so focused on that. And it enters into our own lives and it affects us. Be gracious. Stay focused on Christ and Scripture. Do not become experts on evil. And this next one's one of the most important ones. As you examine these things, as you move forward in your walk, resist cynicism. Resist becoming cynical. I've been here a long time. I know, some of you are saying, yeah, it's a little too long. Um, but I have. There's good things, bad things, but mostly good things. When I, when I reached my 20th anniversary in this church, the church um, gave my wife and I an incredible, gracious gift. To mark that time, um, C.S. Lewis's home in England, outside of Oxford, a place called the Killens, is run by uh, uh, the Lewis Foundation. And once a year, I don't know if this has changed, but in that time, in the spring and in the fall, they would have 10 people were permitted to come in and live in his home as a bed and breakfast. They'd bring uh, professors in and other ones. You'd have discussions on Lewis's works and Tolkien's occasionally, but mostly Lewis's things and tour around where he lived and different things. And it was just a fascinating, fantastic gift to be given. When we were there, there was a, um, of, the, of the other eight people that were there, one of them and his wife, um, he was an illustrator for Disney. And, and he, in his kindness, illustrated something out of the Narnia books um, for each of my family. And then one that I'd requested, and it's this one that I requested. These hang in my home. Some of you are into the Narnia books. Um, you understand this real quickly. Others I'll try and bring you up quickly. It's, it's a series of books about a, a land that is a full of talking animals and dwarfs and everything else. And Aslan is this lion figure who is the son of the emperor across the sea. He's a Christ figure. At one point in time of the books, he's actually killed for a traitor, but, but is brought back to life again uh, um, because he died for a traitor. And so there's a lot of imagery used in it. There's one of the books that's a favorite of mine. is the last one in the series, and it's titled The Last Battle. All of them are so full of hope and joy and everything else. This last battle is pretty grim. It's the last king of Narnia. And uh, um, he, he, he's been way on vacation up, up in an area of the woods there. He comes back to find that, that Aslan has suddenly returned to the land, supposedly. And everyone's hanging out to find out who he is. And so they want to find out too, and they go there, but they realize quickly it's a false Aslan. It's just a donkey with a lion's uh, skin trapped around it. And an ape is trying to sell it off as the real thing. But the animals are buying it, and other people are buying it. And the enemies of the country, uh, a group of people, are there also playing into this to try to take over the country. And as he realizes what's going on, he finally stands up and says, this is false. Everyone who's basically for Aslan and for Narnia, come to me. And a bunch of the animals run to his side. But a bunch of them just sit there. They don't know what to believe anymore. They're so confused. They don't know what to believe. And some slowly slip away. And a fight breaks out between the, the guys that have come in support of this, these, these bad guys, and, and the good guys. And there's a grouping of the Narnians who were dwarfs that have sat on the sidelines. And they're sitting there, and they're not supporting either side. They say, we're, we're tired of being fooled. You know, we're for ourselves. That's it. As the fight progresses, at one point in time, as it gets desperate, a, a whole group of, of talking horses are freed, and they're going to run in and help the good guys. And as they're charging on and everyone's cheering, suddenly you hear the twang of bows, and the dwarfs kill every single one of those animals before they can reach the fight. 
And the good guys are saying, what are you doing? You were supposed to be on our side. You were one of us. What are you doing? And they sit there and say, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. We're not going to be fooled by anybody anymore. As the fight progresses and gets desperate, they're suddenly realizing there's reinforcements for the bad guys coming in. And next thing you know, the dwarfs start shooting at them too and say, you think we're on your side? No, we're for ourselves. But the difference is these guys have armor on. And so they're able to handle it. And they take the dwarfs and they toss them inside this old stable. There's something mysterious going on in the stable. And they toss them in there. The fight winds down. The good guys lose. The last king grabs the leader of the bad guys and because everyone's staying away from the stable, thrusts him inside the stable to face whatever's there. And what's there is his god, a horrible creature, and bites him up and takes off and bites him up in one, one globe. Who's also there is Aslan. And he looks at this creature and he banishes the creature. And the king suddenly realizes he's refreshed and he's, he's, he's suddenly renewed, and he sees all the former kings and queens of Narnia. And Aslan, and there's a realization that he's crossed over, that he has died, but he's in a place now where he can exhibit all these things or experience all these things. But this, there's a section of the stable that is still dark. So all the vistas of the hills and everything else out here, all the great people, there's a section over here is dark, and these dwarfs are inside this place. And there's an appeal to Aslan. Can't you do something to, to help these guys? Because they don't see anything. They won't exhibit what's going on. He makes an elaborate meal to suddenly appear. And they start to eat it, but they start talking about how it's just stuff off the floor of the stable and it's leftover carrots and it's, it's swill water out of the thing. Horrible is it? But, you know, and then they think each one's got something better, so they start beating each other up. And then they're bruised and battered lying on the floor and disgusted and everything else, but saying, well, at least nobody's fooling us. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Aslan can't do anything. And they realize that these individuals are so blind they cannot come out of the circumstances they are and their cynicism has driven them into a place where there is no salvation. That to me has always been one of the most tragic expressions that I've ever seen. that we would be so jaded by false teachers or by good teachers who fail. We don't do that to medicine. We don't sit here, well, this doctor had a moral failure or a medical failure, so all of medicine, I'll never be treated by a doctor again. We never say that. We recognize that was a failure. That was a fool. But this is still true, this science. In the same way, this faith is true. And despite all the false teaching and despite all the failures of all the people that you will encounter, including your own, There is a truth that resonates throughout time and space. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a statement that we are a fallen people in need of salvation, broken and shattered beyond belief. But that we had a God who loved us this much, that he worked out injustice in the purposes of justice so that the wrath fell upon his own son. That we become convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit, that our eyes are made open, that we step out of that stable of cynicism and unbelief and we're able to embrace the king of all creation, that our future in that is assured. So yes, I started this whole thing in anger, moved to depression, moving to sadness, but I've reached to a point of resolution and hope because I believe that we must be gracious. Not everyone or everything is heretical. That we must remain focused and not become experts in evil. That we must focus on Christ, on his cross, and on his word. That we must resist cynicism and dwarfism. 
And so I finally reach a place of being hopeful where I look at these words that are like a light shining in the dark place. That I read John chapter 1 verse 5 that talks about Christ coming as a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. It never can. And I know with absolute assurance that I see in Scripture and I know within my heart that there is going to come a time, as the Word says, where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And some of those knees and some of those tongues, when they confess that, will be with sorrow and resignation. He is Lord. I missed it. My cynicism and my blindness kept me out of this whole thing and now my fate is sealed. But there'll be so many others that will with joy shout what we have shouted all the time in worship gatherings like this, that he is Lord. There will be a time. And so I ask you again, what is your source of truth? What do you listen to? And if some of these things you've listened to or you examine it, don't feel foolish and stupid or or anything like that. Just realize there's things that get missed. But pay attention. Focus in. Look at what's nourishing you and shaping you and the thoughts that are going through you. Father, I did not want to deliver this message. I I don't like the time focused upon those things that are ugly and wrong, but if we don't understand that they exist and that there is an evil that would attempt to deceive even the elect, then we are being foolish. So I ask God today for wisdom in this congregation. I ask for those who have been offended by the words offered that they look down and examine why they've been offended. I pray, Lord, against the cynicism that resides within our hearts. Lord, I pray above all that our source of truth would be you and your word. So be gracious. Stay focused. Resist the cynicism. Above all, be hopeful. Dwell on those things that are good. Seek out the truth and you'll know the counterfeit. But don't be naive. There are those that would ensnare us out there. When we conclude this service, there'll be those around the front. If you want prayer, you can come up and be a part of that. But I close right now with a scripture that is instruction to us out of Psalm 25. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior. (laughs) And my hope, it is in you all day long. All night and all into the next day back tonight again, it doesn't stop. Father, I pray that you would continue to guide us as your people. I pray that you'd speak to hearts and minds and that you'd keep us clear in the pursuit of your truth. That we'd have a perspective and view of the world that is yours. That we'd give freedom to those things that are of dispute, but upon those things of which there's clarity on and and no dispute that we'd hold true. Guide us as we continue to pursue this. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, I want to deal with the subject that is at the core of all of this. If this part's not understood, 
then the rest of it's a mess. So next week, same time. <laughs>